You are listening to the City on a Hill Sermon Podcast. For more information about our church and to support this ministry, visit cityonahilldfw.com. Thank you. Good morning. I have to put the jacket on so that the people online don't confuse me with the drummer, right? It's good to be with you this morning. For those of you watching or listening online, thank you for tuning in. Welcome to our first week of our Advent series that we are titling Light of the World. And I want to tell you, I'm very excited to begin this last season of the year with you. 2022 has been, I think, a really important year in the lifespan of the church, and it's one that... Uh, the Lord has proven himself faithful to us time and time again. And so it's a little bittersweet, honestly, uh, to see the year come to an end. Uh, but it's also exciting because I love this time of the year. It's one of my favorite times of the year. I must confess, though, it's a strange time of the year. It's a strange time because of the sort of the spectrum of feelings that people feel in these last six to eight weeks of each year. On the one hand, it's a season where it's very celebratory, it's very decorative. We put trees up this year. Uh, we have the little, the what are these called again? I can't remember. Poinsettias. I was just going to say plants, but then I'll get an email for that. Poinsettias. Um, you know, it's celebratory, it's decorative, there's, there's light, there's lights and trees and garland, and it finally gets cold outside. All of God's Texan people said what? And, Amen. Praise the Lord. Not hot. Uh, it, it's a time of the year when people start to feel okay about melting chocolate bars into warm milk and then drinking it. Um, it's a little weird. I'm here for it. I'm here for it. It's a beautiful season. But on the other hand, it is, it is a very trying time for many of us. In the midst of a very celebratory time with lights and decorations, there's a very dark side of the season as well. The world begins to move a bit faster. Traffic gets infinitely worse. Uh, you start having to make plans for family gatherings uh, for some people that you can't wait to see and some people you secretly wish would get stuck in traffic forever for eternity and that would never make it to another family gathering again. Recent study in 2021 found that three in five Americans feel that their mental health is negatively impacted during Christmas time. Uh, 52% felt an increase in depression. Of course, that is also because we only have like seven hours of daylight right now. Um, 60% reported an increase in anxiety during this time of the year. It's a time of the year where life is dominated by uh, lists of presents that you have not bought yet, recipes you have not made yet, and gatherings that you have very little time or mental energy to attend. It's just overwhelming. It's exhausting. Husbands fight with their wives a little bit more. You get a little bit more frustrated with your kids. You get a little angrier at the drivers on the road. You feel a little worse physically because the food we're all eating, let's just be honest, is a lot heavier than we're used to, right? A lot of extra desserts. And by the end of it, by January, when January rolls around, there's almost this sort of collective sigh amongst even God's people that's just kind of like, thank God we got past that, <laughs> right? We can finally get back to our normal lives. And so my goal over the next six weeks of this Advent series is not to ignore the pressures of this season. It's not to ignore the difficulties that so many of us will experience, but rather to reintroduce us to the hopefulness of this season in spite of the difficulty that we may face. 
It's to reorient ourselves back to the reason that we do all of this, not only during this six-week time period, but every week, every year, that in the midst of the chaos, you might be reminded that this time of year brings us great hope and joy and peace and love, that we might be reminded of the light that Jesus brought into this very dark world nearly 2,000 years ago and be filled with wonder and awe in the midst of all of it as we think about the height and the depth and the breadth of God's unfailing love for his people. Now, before we jump into this, I want to tackle a question that many of you I know are wondering. You've been asking this probably since we announced this series, which is, what is Advent? Anyone? You can be, yeah, okay, good. Some of you are not honest. Advent <laughs> is not a normal, uh, it's not a normal practice in our tradition, uh, in, in our denomination. It's not something that we typically do. Uh, it's not even really a word that we use much in our common vernacular. It comes from the Latin word adventus. It's a word that means literally arrival or appearance. So you may have heard someone talk about how the world changed at the advent of social media. People talk about that. The advent of technology has changed the landscape of humanity. And it's true, I mean, there is no doubt about it. Certainly for the better, we're all better for social media, are we not? <laughs> In the Christian context, Advent refers to the arrival or the appearance of Christ. So an Advent series, what we're going to be doing here over this next six weeks, is considering how the birth of Christ, the arrival of Jesus, of light into this world, has fundamentally changed everything. Nothing is the same after Jesus. Nothing, we, we can never go back to how it was before. Jesus fundamentally alters reality. And so over the next six weeks, we're going to examine the dark world into which Jesus came. And we're going to consider the hope that the prophets gave us as they foretold his coming in the future. Not really knowing what it would look like, but certain that God would send an anointed Messiah to redeem his people. We're going to consider the love and the joy and the peace that Jesus gives us as we place our faith in him, and ultimately, uh, we're going to look towards the second advent, which is coming in the future, when Christ comes back, not as the lamb, but as the lion. Amen. The Bible refers to advent in a lot of ways. It uses a lot of different illustrations uh, to talk about Jesus coming into the world. Uh, more often than not, it is referred to, or the illustration that's used is light into darkness. John chapter one, verses four and five, John says, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. And he says that the light shines into the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. He goes on in verse 9. He says, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. So John is describing this Advent moment where light came into the world, and it affected everybody. No one escapes this. No one can say, well, this isn't really for me. It has fundamentally changed everything for everyone. This light began to illuminate everything for everyone in a way that was unlike anything else that has ever happened. Jesus himself talks about this in John chapter 12, verse 46. He says, I have come into the, the, the world as light. This is the, the Lord's words. So that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. Jesus is setting up a, a proposition that we are all in darkness apart from him, but that those who believe in him might find light. That they would be removed from darkness darkness, that the light of God coming into a dark world is often how Advent is described. So this morning, we find ourselves in the very dark world of Isaiah 59. 
a world that desperately needs the light of Jesus. And during this time in human history, the people of God, Israel, in this context, were full of hopelessness. This was a very bad time for them. They find themselves crying out to God in prayer over and over and over again, and yet God does not respond to them at all. How many of you can relate to that feeling? Where you pray and you pray and you pray and it just doesn't seem like God is moving in the way that you desire to see him move. This is what they were experiencing, a lack of God's presence in their life. And they began to think, they began to try to reason with this, right? Like, like, okay, God's not answering, God's not responding, we're his chosen people, something must be wrong. And, And this is what they came up with. Maybe God isn't strong enough to solve our problems, You know, maybe this is just outside of his expertise. Maybe he can't do this. He can do a lot of things, but maybe he can't do this. Some of them began to reason, well, maybe God just isn't paying attention to us, right? Maybe he's napping. Maybe he's away on vacation or something, you know? And and he'll, he'll check his voicemail eventually and get back with us. And so Isaiah comes onto the scene, a beloved prophet, if you will, I say that very sarcastically. Everyone hated Isaiah. Um, He comes in in verse one, he says this, behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, nor is his ear dull that he cannot hear. In other words, what he's saying is wrong. The reason God is not answering you is not because he's too weak. It's not because he's not paying attention to you. It's not because he's on vacation. He says, on the contrary, verse 2, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. It's their sin, in other words, that has created this separation between them and the God that they are praying to. Sin is the issue. And so this sets the stage for our whole series, really, this morning, as we consider our need for the light of the world, the light that has come into the world world, what darkness is it coming into? That's the question that we have to ask. What really was the world like before all of this, and in a lot of ways is still like this apart from Christ's presence in those communities? And so we're going to talk this morning a lot about the toll that sin takes on us, not only individually, but, but corporately as well. And so hang with me. It's our first like Christmas sermon series, and we're going to be talking about sin. Great. But we have to. We have to understand the darkness that, that necessitates the light. Why did God need to send Jesus into the world? What was wrong with the world? There were a lot of things wrong with the world, and we're going to find out this morning at least some of what that was like. The first thing we notice here in this passage that sin does to us is it separates the individual. Look at at verse two again. He says, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. So there's an idea here of being removed from the presence of God. They're praying, but somehow their sin has separated them away, has moved them away from the presence of God. I want you to pay attention to that word separate. It's the Hebrew word mavdalim, and it's, it's first used in the Old Testament. The first time we ever find it is in Genesis chapter one, verse four, which is a very interesting passage to find this word in, given the context of this series. You remember Genesis one, what is it primarily about? Creation. God creates the heavens and the earth, and he goes through the six days of creation and then rests on the seventh, the Sabbath day. In, in, in verse three, it says, God said, let there be light, and there was light. So God was creating in darkness, and then he says, let there be light, and for the first time ever, light comes into existence. But then look what it says in verse four. And God saw that the light was good, and God what? Separated the light from the darkness. Same word, mavdalim. The light 
separates from the darkness. God moves them apart. In other words, what he's saying is that in the same way that light cannot be mixed with darkness because light expels darkness, God's presence cannot be mixed with sin because God's presence expels sin. I want you to connect with this, that sin creates separation in your life. It leaves you lonely. It leaves you apart from God in many ways, actually. Uh, but the first way is that it separates us from God. And some people get upset by this reality. They think that, you know, God is just being, you know, he's just being unreasonable, you know? He's just being grumpy, and, and it's, he's unaccepting, and he's just this unloving person who, who just can't meet me halfway. You know, why can't he compromise a little bit? And so we kind of get mad at God. But that would be like getting mad at light for expelling darkness. It's, it's, it's just the way it works. It's just how it happens. Light expels darkness because darkness is the absence of light. So every night before we go to sleep, our room has a, a back door that leads out into the backyard. And we have a small little dog named Freddie, named after uh, either Fred Rogers or Freddie Mercury. Your pick. Um, <laughs> two great poets of our age. Every time we let him out to go to the bathroom before we go to bed, we open the door and he runs out. There is never a moment in my life, ever, where I open the door hoping that the darkness isn't gonna just like overtake my room. Right, I don't ever think that. I don't ever think like, ooh, here it go, okay, we're good. Right, I don't ever walk into a dark room and turn the light on and hope like, I hope this works. I hope the darkness of this room doesn't overtake the light bulb, right? Because light expels darkness. Isaiah is saying in the same way, God expels sin from his presence. Here's what that means for us today as active. We're not in Isaiah's time, but in, in our time, it means that when I'm active in my sin, when I am pursuing my sin, when I am living in it, I end up with a sensation that God's face is hidden from me because of what sin does to me and the presence of God within me. John talks about this. John the Apostle, 1 John chapter 1, verse five and six, he says, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that what? God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him, while we walk in darkness, we lie and we don't practice the truth. Because we can't, because it's not possible. He's saying, your fellowship with God is disrupted. You quench the Holy Spirit. That's the way Paul talks about it a lot. When you walk in sin, because God's presence expels sin away from him. So understand that your sin separates you from God. But not only that, it separates us from one another. Look at verse three. It says, for your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies. Your tongue mutters wickedness. He talks about how uh, their hands are covered in blood. This is a really uh, kind of gruesome imagery here. Uh, it's a word that, that conveys the idea of, of defiled, a defiled sense. It's unclean, in other words. In other words, they didn't have blood on their hands because they just got back from a hunting trip and were cleaning the, the deer. They had blood on their hands because they had murdered people because they were guilty of violence against one another. There's an element of guilt here attached to this. The same hands that they were lifting in prayer to God were covered, they were stained in the blood of people that they had murdered. They'd become a violent people. So let's talk about this for a moment. This is not a topic we talk about all that often. It doesn't come up that often in the New Testament, but this idea of physical violence for a moment. 
Physical violence is a, it's a really bad sign, particularly for nations, when, when they become uh, so in, inflamed in physical violence that they're described as a violent people. It's a red flag. Whenever a nation begins to be described as a violent people, it usually means God is about to humble them, at least in the history of the Old Testament. Psalm 11, verse five, it says, the Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. I mean, that's a very specific thing that the psalmist is saying God despises. The Lord hates violence towards other people. Now, I want to be very clear about something. This is not talking about violent movies. It's not talking about war. I mean, God sent his people to war over and over again throughout the old. Just read the Old Testament history. You'll find out pretty quickly. Not talking about war. It's not talking about blood or gore. Our gospel is a blood-drenched message. It includes a bloody gory beating and murdering of our Messiah. So it's not talking about that either. The the idea of violence in in the Old Testament, it it conveys the idea of a ruthlessness, of a ruthless spirit towards other people. Someone who is filled with malice, one who seeks other people's destruction. That is the thing that Isaiah is saying God hates. It's very interesting actually in Genesis chapter six, if you remember, the Noah narrative, right? Uh, Do you remember why God decides finally to flood the earth and destroy everything and kill everyone except for Noah and his three sons and their wives? Verse 11 says, now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and the earth was filled with violence. Not sexual immorality, although that is implied in the verses prior to that. Uh, It's not with anything else but actual violence. Of all the sins that you could imagine, this is the one that spurs off one of the greatest judgments in the Bible. And yet the dark world of Isaiah 59 is full of it. Now, again, I mentioned this a moment ago that the New Testament doesn't deal very much with physical violence. Uh, we're not typically a physically violent people unless you're at a Dallas Cowboys game. Um, and if you're doing that, don't, okay? And by that, I mean going to cowboy games. Don't do that. It's only full of heartbreak. We're not really usually guilty of physical violence, but we are often guilty of relational violence, what I would call relational violence. And it's implied here in this passage in Isaiah, and the New Testament has a lot to say about it as well. Let me give you a few examples of what I mean by relational violence. If if you look back uh, on this passage, it talks about lies, lips that have spoken lies, tongues that mutter wickedness. This kind of goes at this idea of relational violence. The New Testament gives several examples. One is slander. This is a big one in the New Testament, has a lot to say about that. Paul talks about it in 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 20, Ephesians 4, 31, Colossians 3, 8. Peter warns against slander in 1 Peter 2, 1. Uh, Jesus himself says in Matthew 15, 19, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual morality, theft, false witness, slander. It's mentioned there as something that proceeds from the heart. So get this, this is important. There's this idea that slander is sort of a crime of passion, right? It's, it's it like, so in other words, you get angry, someone does something to you, uh, maybe you feel wronged by someone, maybe you actually are wronged by someone, for real. And in the heat of your anger, you go and you slander that person to other people. And then once you start to calm down, once the passion is over with, you start to calm down and think better about the situation and you think, man, I shouldn't have said that about that person, you know? I didn't really mean what I said. You may even tell people that. You know, I didn't really mean, I didn't really mean what I said. And, and Jesus is saying here, actually, you did. You did mean that because slander comes from the heart. 
Now, maybe you don't believe whatever lie you made up about them because you know it was a lie, but you did mean to inflict damage upon them. That's the whole purpose of slander. You did mean to knock them down in that moment. It's, it's what we would call character assassination. That's the whole point of slander, is to bring someone down. It's relational violence, and it's sin. It separates us from other people and ultimately from God as we grieve the Holy Spirit within us. What about gossip? This is another one that's usually in the same crowd as slander. Uh, two are, are often named together in the New Testament, very similar. Slander is an active shot at someone, whereas gossip literally is a whisper. It conveys the idea of offering derogatory information about someone, usually in a tone of confidentiality. So you can usually spot gossip by the phrase, now don't tell them I said this. <laughs> That's a red flag, right? There may be times when, like if you're planning a birthday party for someone or, or you know, something that's nice, but I mean, overwhelmingly, this is something that is said that follows uh, something that's meant to stir up negativity around another individual. Proverbs 16.28 says, a dishonest man spreads strife and a whisperer separates close friends. It's relational violence. It's the intent to harm a relationship, separates us from one another. What about jealousy? It's also sometimes translated as envy in the New Testament. Uh, It's the Greek word zealos. It's a word from which we get our English word zealous. And it conveys the idea of not only desiring what another person has, but a desire that creates an ill will towards that individual. This is the underlying mechanism, by the way, of the phrase, that's not fair. Right? The that's not fair mentality. Underlying that is usually jealousy or envy. And again, the New Testament does not look kindly upon this at all. James 3.16, he says, For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. Paul lists a, a, vi- a list of vices in Galatians chapter 5, 19 through 21. And he says, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Jealousy is listed in that. It's a serious stuff. I mean, the the New Testament is very serious about the severity of gossip and slander and jealousy. So understand, we need the light of Jesus. We need the light of the world. Apart from it, sin creates separation in our lives. It separates us from God as we break commandments. It separates us from one another as we violate one another, uh, both physically and relationally. These are all uh, violations of actually the Ten Commandments. So a physical violence that leads to murder is a breaking of the Sixth Commandment. Gossip and slander is a breaking of the Ninth Commandment. Uh, Jealousy is a breaking of the 10th commandment. These are serious offenses that go all the way back to the 10 commandments. So sin separates us as individuals, but it gets worse. Second, sin destroys the community as well. So there's an idea of individual problem and corporate problem with sin. Not only does the individual suffer ramifications from sin, but there are There are communal ramifications as well. Look at verse 14. It says, justice is turned back and righteousness stands far away for truth has stumbled in the public squares and uprightness cannot enter. Now, I want to deal with this for a moment. I don't hope I step on your toes, but if it happens, right, when in Rome. There's an idea in the church today that Christians should only be concerned with truth in the context of our religious experience. 
So we should only be concerned with truth as we're practicing our religion, right? So when we're in the church, we can be bold about the truth. We can, be, we can talk about the light of the world and we can talk and celebrate about Jesus. Praise God, praise Jesus. We're Jesus people, right? All that is great in here. But then when you get out into the world, the rules change a little bit. You need to respect the fact that not everybody is a Christian and, and maybe not be so vocal or pushy because to do so would be disrespectful to those people. Now, now let me say up front, we should be respectful of all people. All people are created in God's image. They bear the Imago Dei. Uh, this, is, this is basic biblical theology. You should be respectful of other people. The question is, what does the Bible mean by respecting other people and how is it different from the world's definition? I wanna give you a truth. I want you to wrestle with it for a moment and I'll walk through it. The Bible teaches us to respect people, not people's beliefs. The Bible teaches us to respect people, not people's beliefs. To respect someone is very different than to respect what that person believes. They are not the same thing at all, despite what the world would want you to think. Christians should respect other people by speaking with kindness and with self-control, not, not flying off the rails anytime anyone says something inflammatory. Your word should be seasoned with salt. Uh, we should practice listening before responding. Very important to hear what people are saying before we offer a, uh, a response. We should embody compassion as the Lord did in, in his dealings. All that is good. We're never commanded, though, to respect what a person believes, especially if that belief is immoral or unbiblical. When you read the Gospels, by that understanding, Jesus is extremely disrespectful to people then because he does not have respect for people who have bought into lies. He's very forthcoming with them. He's very black and white with regard to what is right and wrong. The entire scripture, the entirety of scripture is very black and, and white with, with regard to what is right and what is wrong. So if someone believes something that is wrong, you are never commanded to have respect for that belief. Are you following me? You're very nervous, I can see it. <laughs> Let's don't beat around the bush. Let's give some examples. We like to be practical here. What are the big topics of the world today? Same-sex marriage, transgenderism, abortion. I just hit all three of them like that. First Christmas sermon, and we just went there. But for example, I mean, let's just think about this for a moment. If someone advocates for these things, Christians have believed the lie that in order to be respectful to other people, you need to respect their beliefs on those things. Because not everyone believes like you, you need to be kind to them, you need to pray for them, and then you just need to be quiet about it. And don't stir up the pot, and don't cause problems, because that's unloving, right? If you don't respect, this is where the world has gotten today, my wife reminded me of this week, that if you don't respect someone for what they believe, it's actually a form of hate. You're actually unloving to them. That sentiment is found nowhere in the Bible. That is a foreign concept to scripture. You are never told to affirm a belief that is, that is rooted in a lie. In fact, to affirm something that you know is wrong is actually one of the most unloving things you can do. Peter gives great counsel on this. Let me, let me show you how scripture tells us we should think about this. First Peter chapter three, Peter talks about people who are hostile to the Christian faith. 
right? These are the people who think that Christians are bigoted, you're hateful, you're not inclusive enough, you're, you know, they're, they are against you in every way, shape, and form. Peter says in 1 Peter 3.15, always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. In other words, what he's saying is be ready to contend with them. Get defensive. They're going to argue with you. Be ready for it. Have an answer preloaded. Think about these things. Right? When they question you, when, we're starting a, a group, the second service, uh, 1030, Tactics. Michael Lewis is leading this group. This is why we are pushing this so hard, because it's a biblical command. You need to have a, an answer ready. You need to be ready for a defense when people who are hostile towards you ask you or criticize you for what you believe. But then look at what he says in this verse, yet do it with gentleness and kindness. So get this. You can have respect for an individual and disagree with their beliefs, in Peter's words. They're not mutually exclusive. It is possible to both respect them and tell them why what they believe is wrong. This is the issue we face today, in the world today. This is, I would say, maybe the number one problem that the church faces right now is the unwillingness to speak truth regardless of what it might cost us. It's an issue that it was, it was faced in Isaiah's time as well. Verse 14, this is a key passage. Truth has stumbled in the public square. Notice where he's talking about. He's not saying truth has stumbled in the pulpit. Preachers aren't preaching the truth anymore. Truth has stumbled in the Bible study room. They're not studying the Bible anymore. Truth has stumbled in the kids' ministry or the student ministry. That's not what he's saying. He's saying it stumbled out there. In society, in the world, that is the problem, that is the issue. Now, why is that a problem? Because the more truth stumbles in the public square, the more a community, a city, a state, a nation falls into utter chaos and destruction. Because if God's moral law is binding on the world, and we believe it is, that's what the Bible teaches, then regardless of whether or not someone accepts it or believes it, whenever that law is broken, it will lead to chaos and destruction. So let's use our imaginations for a moment. I love to do uh, imagination exercises, if you will. Think for a moment about a community, okay? A lovely community. Maybe even like a, a 1950s community with little white picket fences, right? Everyone is happy. It's in black and white. Um, think for a moment that the community has decided on all of our major highways, so, so this can't be the 1950s, speed up to like maybe the 90s. The speed limit is gonna be 60 miles an hour. That's the law, that's what we've decided. But we gotta get the law out to people. We gotta make sure that people understand what the law is. So here's what we're gonna do. We're going to make highway signs that say speed limit 60. And we're gonna put them all up and down the highway so that whenever people are driving on these roads, they know the law is 60 miles an hour. We wanna communicate it to everyone so no one is in the dark about it, right? Now let's imagine that a person comes along and they drive 98 miles down the freeway and they're pulled over and they're ticketed for going 38 miles over the speed limit. And the officer says to him, uh, why were you speeding? Did you not see the speed limit signs that we've put up all up and down the highway? To which the person responds, yes, officer, I saw the sign, but um, see, the thing is, I don't believe in the 60 mile an hour speed limit in your city. I, I, I don't accept it. it. It may work well for your life, but your truth is not my truth. 
And frankly, I think it's a little unloving that you're forcing your speed limit onto me. <laughs> now, at first, the officer thinks this is a joke, as many of you do. And then they figure out the person is actually being serious. And he says, well, I'm really sorry, but, but the law is the law. And he writes him the ticket, and he walks away. And the person becomes livid. How dare this man oppress me with a 60-mile-an-hour speed limit? And he convinces other people as well. You know what? We shouldn't have to be forced to drive this way. After all, everyone should have the freedom to choose what speed limit they want to drive. Uh, and, and so they begin to put social pressure on the traditionalists of this community. And they begin to advocate, we need to get rid of the highway signs altogether. We need to organize a group, and we need to go remove them. We need to pull them out of the ground. So they've pulled them out of the ground now. There's no speed limits anywhere. Now, on the highway, no one knows the speed limit. It's utter chaos. There are wrecks. People are holding up traffic. It's just total disorder. And, and the irony of the whole scenario is that the law has not changed. <laughs> it's still 60 miles an hour. You can still get pulled over and ticketed. The problem is, is that just no one knows that. Taking the signs away doesn't change the law. It just silences the law from being communicated to the people. The law is still the law. People aren't aware of it, though, and so they're living in chaos. This is an allegory, if you haven't figured this out, for God's law in the world. God's moral law. It's true regardless of how I feel about it, whether or not I'm even aware of it. In other words, you can silence Christians from speaking truth in the public square. You can make truth stumble out in society. You can pull up the highway signs if you want. God's law is still true. And the only thing that you're doing by, by silencing it is actually destroying the community as people fall into chaos. Now, how does this happen? Let me give you an example of how it actually unfolds in, in real life, because this just happened a few weeks ago. Um, our country has faced a decades-long debate over abortion, over the topic of abortion. It's all about women's health care and women's rights, and it's this ongoing debate of whether or not it should be legal or not legal, and, and you've probably heard at least enough of it to know the argument. But in God's law, it's not a debate. There is no, there is no other side. It's just wrong. And you might think, well, what if I'm not a Christian? What if I don't believe like you do? Well, that doesn't make it not true. I am a Christian, and my belief in it doesn't make it true. So the more Christians remain silent about this, the more highway signs are pulled up, the more we descend into confusion, into darkness. Case in point, a few weeks ago during the midterms, uh, <clears throat> the lovely state of Montana was asked to vote on a bill that would have legally required doctors to provide life-saving care to an infant born alive even after an abortion attempt. So an abortion takes place, it fails, the child is born alive. This law would have made it mandatory for doctors to provide life-saving treatment. 52% of voters in Montana said no. I don't know how to say this, and so forgive me for coming off course. I don't know how else to, to frame this. That's evil. It's just evil. It, it's, it's, not, it's, not about, it's not about healthcare anymore when it gets to the stage. It's not about rights. It is about rights. It's about the, the, the right of, of a born human being who's being, who's being treated like not a human being. But, but this is what happens when you remove the highway signs and you try and silence the law. It doesn't change the law. It just creates destruction in a community. We need the light of Jesus 
Because without it, we remain in darkness and sin. Our sin separates us from God, it separates us from one another, and it wreaks havoc on the communities that we live in as we descend further and further into chaos, disorder, and destruction. But there's good news. I told you we would end with good news. It's a Christmas message. It's a Christmas series. The good news is that in spite of all of that, the light comes into darkness. Look at verse 20. Isaiah says, and a redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who turn from transgression, who repent, in other words, who turn away from their sin, declares Yahweh. So he's gonna send a redeemer, and that redeemer is going to redeem those who repent of their sin. Verse 21, and as for me, this is my covenant with them, declares the Lord. My spirit that is upon you and my words that I have put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says Yahweh, from this time forth and forevermore. He's talking about a new covenant that he is going to make with his people. He's going to send a redeemer and those who repent of their sins are going to be redeemed and included into this covenant where God's spirit is going to dwell with them forever and ever into eternity. And then look at this, this is very beautiful. Isaiah chapter 60, verse one, the very next verse. He says, arise, shine, for your light has come. No more darkness. Your light is here and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you for behold, Darkness shall cover the earth and thick darkness the peoples, but Yahweh will arise upon you and his glory will be seen upon you and the nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. The dark world will get a light that will come into it, God says. And what I want you to know this morning is that it happened. It happened already in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is why we celebrate Advent. The world was laid in darkness and the Lord arose upon them. His glory was seen. Kings came to the brightness of his rising. The nations came to the light. The wise men, the shepherds, the Gentiles, the foreigners, all of them came to look upon the light of the world in a baby in a manger, our Redeemer who grants forgiveness and redemption for those who would turn away from their sin in repentance and believe in him. Jesus says, they will no longer walk in darkness for they will have the true light which I come and bring to you. A redeemer that would unite us individually back to God, that would restore our relationship with him, that would, that would bring healing in the relationships between one another, that would restore us collectively as communities begin to be illuminated by the light of Christ as he expels the darkness not only in us but around us as well. The light of the world has come and he has brought redemption with him. Welcome to Advent season. Let's pray. Father, how we thank you that you are a gracious God, that you look down upon the earth and saw the darkness, the despair, the sin, the violence. Your word says that you look down for someone who was good, for anyone who would seek after you, and you found no one, that there were none who pursued you. And yet still you sent your son Jesus in the flesh, a baby in a manger, 
in the backwoods of a small town to bring redemption to your people who would trust you, who would walk by faith, who would repent, who would believe you, your words, the gospel, and be renewed and restored and made whole, born again unto your kingdom. God, we recognize there's still a lot of darkness in the world, but your light has overcome it. And we're grateful for that, not only in our own personal lives, but in the life of this church and the life of this community. And we pray that your light would ever shine until your second advent that we look forward to. How we love you and we honor you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I do want to, if, if I have your attention for a moment, I, I do want to mention one thing that uh, is of importance uh, given the traditions of this church and what we're going to be doing on Christmas Eve. Uh, we will have a Christmas Eve service this year, as always. Uh, if you've checked the calendar, you'll know that Christmas morning falls on a Sunday. We will meet on Sunday uh, for one service at 10.30. Given that... <clears throat> service is happening on Sunday, which is Christmas morning, and that their Christmas Eve is on Saturday, we are going to try something a little bit different. We normally offer this service at 5 p.m. It's the most convenient time throughout the week for people who are getting off of work, and we want to do it early enough so you can get back to your families. But given that it's on Saturday this year, uh, we are going to have our service at 1 p.m., and that will give you ample time to be here, to celebrate, and then have the rest of the day and the afternoon and evening with your families to uh, do things that, that are special to you, that are traditional to you. Uh, so 1 p.m. in here, um, for those of you who don't like to drive at night or younger families who have smaller children that can't normally make these nights of worship, uh, this is kind of a special, uh, since it's on Saturday, we're gonna do it at the most convenient time for what we feel like is the sort of whole of our family here. And so I hope to see you there, 1 p.m. on Christmas Eve and then 10.30 a.m. on Christmas morning. God bless you. We'll see you next week.